0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We have been making our way through the book of Hebrews. It has been complex and elegant and beautiful, and it just over and over again shows how Jesus is superior to every other messenger of God's Word, and how Jesus' covenant is superior in every way to the former covenant, to the old covenant. But as we open tonight, i got a fairly easy question for you. Have you ever had a place where you've met someone so often that it became almost like a tradition? That was your spot. Like if you saw them and you said, hey, I'll meet you at our place, you wouldn't have to actually explain what that was. You would just both know where you were going to meet. I've had that happen with several different friends. One place was a a burger place. Another was a Chinese place. I don't know why mine always revolve around food, but It's good to have those kind of friends that you can just say, hey, let's meet at our place. God has established a place like that for us. Under the old covenant, it was so exclusive that it was actually barred to most people. But not because God was wrong in doing it, but because people were wrong. Because we were sinful. But Jesus came to establish a new covenant, and it opens that place to anyone who desires to know him. The gospel writers often concentrate, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they concentrate on Jesus's earthly ministry, how he showed who God was, what his his death and resurrection did. But in a lot of ways, the Hebrews author is showing Jesus's heavenly ministry. What has Jesus done in the spiritual realm on our behalf? And tonight, we're going to take a look at how Jesus, being the perfect high priest under the new covenant, how he goes to do a work in a place that's superior than the tabernacle of the old covenant. The tabernacle was a tent, but it was only meant to be a copy of what was going on in the the heavenly realms. It was a picture of something that was real. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. But one of the things that looking at the old covenant tabernacle does is it helps us to understand a little bit clearer of what Jesus did in reality, what he did in the heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, that's the old covenant, the one under Moses established at Sinai. We talked about it that, that at length over the past couple of weeks. The first covenant had regulations for worship, and it had, pay attention, an earthly place of holiness. That's our focus tonight. We're talking about a place of holiness. One of the things that our author is going to do is he's going to contrast the earthly place of holiness with the heavenly place. And he's going to show that the earthly place has four ways that it is inferior, four ways that it is imperfect, four ways that it is insufficient for us for salvation. And all four of those ways, Jesus and his new covenant make up for. You see, something happened at Sinai. God expressed desire to choose out of all the families, out of all the nations, out of all the people of the world, he chose one specific family, one nation to dwell with, to live with, to have a relationship with in a special way that he wouldn't any other nation on earth. And he picked them out, not because they were the biggest nation or the greatest nation or or the most righteous nation. He picked them out simply because it was his good pleasure to do so. And he chose to love them. And what he does at Sinai is he says, I'm going to give you the blessing that no one else receives. And that is the blessing of my presence with you. But the only way that my presence can be with you is if you are holy. Because I am holy. And so God establishes all these cleanliness laws and these sacrificial traditions and rituals for the sake of making the people holy so that God could be with them. And God's presence with them was a blessing. It would purify them. It would bless them in in their ventures and all the things that they did. And his blessing would be on them wherever they went. There was one time that they sinned so greatly against God, worshiping a golden idol that God said, I'm going to take my presence away from the people, and I'll still give you the blessings, but I can't go with you. And Moses pleaded with God, oh, God, we don't want your blessings. We don't want to move from the spot that we are now unless you go with us. And so God would do this. He would plant his presence right in the middle of their camp, and he would do it through what is called the tabernacle, Exodus 29, verse 45 to 46, you can look it up later, but it expresses God's desire in this blessing. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. No other nation gets this privilege. So God did this, he He showed his presence in the middle of the camp through this portable temple, a tent called the tabernacle. It's made of fabrics and animal skins, bronze and gold. And it's going to be the dwelling place of God in the middle of their camp. And it's gonna have two functions. One, it's gonna be God's dwelling place, his residence. And two, it's gonna be a meeting place where the priests representing the people can go and speak to God on a daily basis on behalf of the people but only the priests could. Only they would see the inside of this tent. So Hebrews chapter nine, verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in earthly earthly place of holiness that you just saw. Verse two, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So you have the bread of the presence and you saw there was 12 loaves on it. The bread of the presence, the idea that God is there. It represented the 12 tribes, and it also represented that God was sustain his people. Think about how God gave them manna every day. And then you have this lampstand, 12 lamps, or seven lamps, seven being the number that means perfect or complete, so that it was perfect light, it was complete light. I love that Jesus' first two statements, his first two I am statements in the book of John were I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. He's already beginning to compare himself to the earthly tabernacle. This idea of a tabernacle doesn't just mean tent, it means a residence. You can use a tent for anything, but this idea is that God stays there which is why there was bread and a lamp. Every tent of every Israelite had at least those two things, light and bread. So there was this idea of God lives here. Someone lives here, and its significance of being covered in gold is the value of the person that was there. Now, see, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But this idea of the tabernacle made God's selection of Israel as his people and his relationship with them perceptible and tangible and visceral. The closeness of God was a step in relationship. This idea of God being in the middle of the camp was this idea of a step in relationship closer to what was broken with Adam and Eve. Since Genesis chapter three, God has been working his plan of salvation, his rescue mission of man, and where God was once transcendent, he is now represented as being at a point on earth where the spiritual overlaps the physical, and that was at the tabernacle. This was a very special place. So you have the holy place, that outer section, and only the priests could go into the holy place, but there was one last place, a smaller one, a dark place where there was no candlelight. And it was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies meant the holiest of all holy places. This was the peak. This was the central. This was where God's presence was manifested. And it was manifested over that Ark of the Covenant. Let's read verse three. Behind the second curtain was a section a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. So the altar of incense, and it was kept outside the Holy of Holies, but it belonged to the Holy of Holies. Because as we're going to see on the Day of Atonement, one of the first things a priest is going to do is bring incense in and let it smoke up the room, the Holy of Holies, with a cloud. David actually suggested that this altar of incense represented the prayers of people rising up to God. We can kind of compare it to how Jesus is our intercessor He is beside God. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What better position to intercede for us than the Son of God sitting at God's right hand interceding for us? And then we have this Ark of the Covenant. The place where God's covenant tablets are hidden inside of it. The lid of the Ark, the lid of this chest, this golden chest is called the mercy seat. The idea is that the Ark of the Covenant represents the bottommost part of God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant is the centermost point, the overlap of heaven and earth at one point. And the heavens are God's throne, and the earth is his footstool. And right here, the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool. It's the bottom of God's throne, reaching into our world. And over this ark, over this tabernacle, during the day was this cloud of smoke showing God's presence. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. And whenever God's presence, that pillar of fire or that smoke would move off of the tabernacle, it meant pack up, we're moving. And they would follow it through the desert. And when it came to a stopping place, They would set up again and set up their camp and God's presence would again come and dwell over the tabernacle. This is where heaven met earth. This was the mercy seat. Think of just, let your mind wander for a minute of how profound it is that God would call his throne the mercy seat. That his throne would be on the foundation of his covenant with his people the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the mercy seat. And it was before God's throne that the priest would sprinkle the blood for our atonement. Think of how rich of symbol that is. Verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The tabernacle was also the tent of meeting. It was the tent where Moses and the successive high priests would go to represent God to the people. But most importantly, the tabernacle was critical on the day of atonement. In, Jew- in, in Hebrew, they called it Yom Kippur. And the Holy of Holies featured a very special role. If you were an Israelite, if you lived around the tabernacle during this time, you looked forward to this day throughout the year. This was a day that your sins were wiped out according to God. This is a day that all the guilt from the year was finally released. This was a day where the priest would go and represent you before God. And if that priest was acceptable before God, then you were acceptable before God. What a breath. What a breath of air to know that at the end of the day of atonement, when the priest emerged out of the Holy of Holies, it meant that God saw you as atoned for. The whole nation would hold their breath. They would fast for 24 hours. They would feel the weight of their sin. They would feel their own mortality, that death was the punishment for their sin. And the high priest would begin this ritual of atonement. First, he would take off his beautiful priestly garbs. They were woven red and purple and blue with gold inlaid. He had precious stones on his chest to represent all of the tribes. He would wear a gold um, diadem or a crown across his head representing holiness. And he would take all of these things off and he would lay them aside to begin the ritual. He couldn't take those in. And he would wash his, himself from top to bottom and put on a plain white robe of white linen. First, he would sacrifice a bull out there on the brazen altar outside of the tabernacle. And after sacrificing this bull, it was for his own sin. He had to be purified first. He had to wear white. He had to be clean. He had to have his sins atoned for through this bull. And then they would bring to him two goats, He would cast lots for them. One goat was going to be for a sacrifice and another goat was going to be called the scapegoat. After he would sacrifice the bull, he would go to that curtain of the Holy of Holies. He would go into the holy place and he would fill up a censer. That's a a golden ball with coals in it that you could pour incense into. And it would create lots of smoke. And he would, for the first time, step into the curtain, bowed, coming before the ark, and he would lay the incense down and back out again quickly. And his robe had bells all along the bottom so that people could listen to what was going on inside. And while he was was away to go get the blood of the bull, the room would fill with the incense smoke, which would cast a veil, making it difficult to see the ark and God's manifest presence. It was already dark in there because there was no source of light. So you have the darkness and you have this screen of smoke. And he would go and take the blood of the bull and he would come in a second time into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle seven times the blood of the bull onto the mercy seat for his own sins. He had to get right. And it would also be as if it was a purification for the Holy of Holies, for the holy place and for the altar out front. And now that he's been made clean, he would make the sacrifice for the atonement of the entire nation. He would go to the first goat and he would cut its throat and lay it as a sacrifice on the altar. And then a second time, he would take the blood of that goat in and he would sprinkle seven times the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat for the people. But then he would come back out and you have this living goat And he would place his hands on the living goat and he would confess the sins of the nation over the head of this goat as if he was taking the sin of the nation he was laying it on this goat's head. And there would be another priest who was tasked with a job to take this goat and lead it out into the empty, barren wilderness so far away from the camp that there's no way the goat would ever find its way back and release it out into the wilderness to never be seen again. These two goats show both halves of the atonement. One, this goat died so that the people were made right before God. They were justified. And the second goat showed that their sin was taken away. How far away? Into the uttermost, never to be seen again. Then when the ritual of atonement was complete, the priest would bathe again, and then he would put back on his beautiful priestly garments. Verse seven, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So that's the bull, and that's the goat. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. But they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they only deal with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the first thing, the tabernacle was inferior because it was earthly. It was made by human hands. The second reason that it was inferior is that it is inaccessible to people. All those tribes living outside got to have God in their midst and yet they could never come in to know him or encounter him. Only the priests. This first covenant was good and it was of God and yet it showed that God was unreachable because of his holiness and our sin. The third thing that shows that the tabernacle was inferior was that it was temporary. As long as As there was a barrier, as there was a curtain between God and man, it showed that God had not yet finished his work of undoing the damage done in the Garden of Eden. It was a step towards what was coming, but the relationship between God and man had not been restored. And fourth, what made it inferior was that it only dealt with the external. It wasn't dealing with the conscience. It wasn't dealing with the human heart. I've got here a glass of black water. Black food coloring. Consider for a second, if you were to take this clean rag and polish the outside, how long would you have to polish the outside before you could clean the water inside? This is a simple example of the first covenant and the second covenant. God offered a way to show clearly. Like what if this glass was dirty on the outside? The first covenant would wipe away the smudges and the dirt and show that on the inside, we were still sinful. That's what the first covenant did. It showed clearly what was inside of man's heart. But the first covenant the blood sacrifices, all the cleanliness laws. They could polish and show that the inside was dirty, but they could never clean what was inside. The first covenant, the first tabernacle was inferior. It didn't do what Jesus could do. It all points to Jesus. And right here in these verses, it talks about a greater and more perfect tent. That more perfect tent is the heavenly throne room. This is the heavens. This is where God resides in unhindered glory. The very throne room that would pulverize anyone who approached with sin. And Jesus enters not just into a physical place behind a physical curtain, but he enters into a much greater, more superior place. He goes before God, the heavenly throne. And he, Jesus, is sufficient. This heavenly throne of God is sufficient. Jesus operated in a tabernacle, not that was earthly, but what was heavenly. Jesus was called a forerunner, in Hebrews 6.20. What does that mean? It means that we're no longer barred. It's no longer closed. He was a forerunner means that he goes in ahead of us, making a way so that we can follow. Three, his work was as eternal as God's heavenly sanctuary. Once and for all is the phrase used here. We shouldn't think of Jesus as repeatedly giving sacrifices like the high priest had to do. He is a living sacrifice, a once-and-for-all sacrifice. And fourth, he doesn't deal with the external only. He finally deals with the blackness inside. He redeems us not with the blood of animals on behalf of a human. He offers human blood, perfect, spotless, holy human blood on behalf of a human. He is our perfect high priest, our perfect human representative operating in a superior holy of holies, God's heavenly throne room. The tabernacle was seen as the place where heaven overlapped earth. But there was a new covenant and a new tabernacle. John chapter one, turn with me there. If you're in Hebrews, go left. John chapter one. You may have never caught this before. But this changes everything. Let's read one through five together. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, the word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without anything was not anything made that was made. Verse four, in him was life, and life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump with me to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know what the word dwelt there means? It means tabernacled. Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. It is where the spiritual meets the physical, and it is in a man, in Jesus. He became our high priest. He took off his robes of glory. Jesus took off his robes of perfect majesty and glory and stepped down from heaven to put on flesh. And he came in plain white robes because even though he was man, he was still holy. And he didn't need a sacrifice for himself, but he fulfills both symbols of the goats. He went before God as a means by his own blood to justify us before God in the heavenly tabernacle. He goes before God's throne to justify us, and he took our sin away. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more, is the covenant in Jeremiah. He was our high priest and our sacrifice of atonement, and his work was done in a superior tabernacle. And then after his work was done, he ascended back to the Father, Represented by the high priest putting his priestly garbs back on. And he sat at the right hand of God. Think for a minute with me how inappropriate it would have been for the high priest going into the Holy of Holies with the incense smoke, bringing the blood. How inappropriate and vulgar it would have been for him to turn around and sit down on the Ark of the Covenant. But Jesus is worthy as a superior high priest to not only go into God's very presence, not just in a tent, but in the throne room of heaven, and because he is also the king, son of God, he is worthy to sit down at the right hand of God. As both priest and king, as both the priest and the perfect sacrifice within the heavenly tabernacle of God's presence. All of these sights and smells and rituals were meant to bring back memories to those who read the book of Hebrews first. These are the rituals that they grew up with, they would have known the smell of incense from the outside. They would have seen the priests going in on their behalf. They would have waited anxiously for the priests to come out, meaning that they were accepted by God and they were tempted to go back to the symbols. And our author here is recalling them and he's saying all of those symbols meant something, but the symbols are empty. We have a high priest who stood before God and you are acceptable before God because of his perfect work in the heavenly throne room of God. What is the point? Why is it so important that there is a heavenly tabernacle? That is God's presence that Jesus went into on our behalf. It comes down to with how I opened that God created a meeting place that is no longer closed. It is now wide open because of our high priest who is our forerunner. God's desire in healing the sin broken at the Garden of Eden was for us to draw near to him. James 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That was impossible under the first covenant. Jeremiah 29 verse 12 and 14 says, you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. There is a seeking. And God says, I am available. And the doors are wide open. Elevate. Maybe you're in here tonight and you're feeling like you're stiff armed by God because of sin. And I need to comfort you. Pay attention right now. Every eye up. You need to understand right now that your sin does cut you out from the very presence of God. But God loved you so much that he sent his son to die and to present himself the perfect sacrifice so that the doors to his presence are wide open. The veil of the temple ripped at Jesus' death. And it's the final symbol that says God's presence is no longer closed, but it's for you, you. And your sin no longer is a barrier for all those who will repent of their sin and make Jesus their Lord and trust in him him as their savior. You can enter the presence of God and his presence through his Holy Spirit enters you. When I was a kid, I got to go to a pretty cool conference. Uh, It was called Promise Keepers. Maybe some of you guys have heard that before, probably some of the adults. It was founded by a man named Bill McCartney, who was was a famous football coach. And there were 70,000 people in this stadium. And during this break, Bill McCartney had come down and he was just glad-handing. He was just shaking hands with people. And there was a crowd around him. All these people that are like, man, this guy is a hero. He's making way for all these men to get together, to worship God together. He's pouring into families. He's pouring into churches. They all wanted to meet him. And so my dad is like, come on, let's go and see if maybe maybe we can shake his hand. Wouldn't that be cool? And so we went down to the front, and there's this big crowd. And there's no way my dad's getting through because there's all these big men shoving in around him. But I'm like this tall at the time. I'm like four foot eight. And my dad said, as he calls me Nick, he said, Nick, just stick your hand in there. And maybe as he's shaking hands, he'll shake yours. And so like me and my little four foot eight self, I just went like this, like that, right? This is as far as I could reach with my fingertips. And I suddenly felt a hand and it Pulled me right in through, and I just went squished right through people, right in. And from my dad's perspective, I just disappeared, gone. And so my dad has to go into like protection. Room. So he's like shoving guys out of the way to like get back to me. And this guy, McCartney, had seen my little tiny hand and he didn't settle for a handshake. He wanted to meet this little hand and he pulled me through the crowd. And here I am saying, uh, ah, uh, and my dad's like coming through, right? You know, oh, you know he's, he's coming, pushing guys out of the way. And it was nice. We got to meet him, we got to shake hands. I don't remember anything real significant about what we said, but I'll never forget that yank of being pulled through the crowd. Elevate. When James says, draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you, he's saying, would you have enough faith to just put your hand out? Would you just reach For the God who loves you so much, who is willing to die for you. If you'll you'll reach, if you'll turn to Him, you have a God that is not interested in an impersonable relationship with you. He wants to know you face to face, He wants you to know Him face to face. H.B. Charles said, that what you seek, you will find. And right now, we are as close to God as we want to be. The only boundaries of your relationship with the Lord is where you want to be. Do you want to know him? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word tonight. And I thank you for the, the picture and symbolism of an earthly tabernacle that shows us what Jesus did in the heavenly is on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that we can know your presence and we can look forward to an eternity in that tabernacle. Lord, I pray that you would call us to know you more, that we would dig in to whatever it takes, whatever disciplines it takes to pursue a deeper relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you're waiting. Give us Give us the unction to reach out for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.